Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You again for another opportunity to study the Bible. Your Word truly is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're thankful to have Your Word in written form. We know that many believers in the past did not have it, seeing that it was being written, and then even believers after it was written didn't have it on a large scale. But Father, we're thankful for the last uh, several hundred years now we've able to been able to read Your Word. Um, I pray, Yahweh, that we wouldn't just read it, but we would hide it in our heart. We would study it. We would read in Your law. We would know Your Gospel. Be better stewards of our time. And Father Yahweh, I pray specifically for this lesson today. I pray that as I've taught these lessons on a subject that doesn't really get much attention, I pray that it would truly be a blessing and a help to people who may have wondered or had questions about hell. I hope that I've answered some of them, Yahweh, and I hope that it's a launching pad where people here um, and those listening by technology uh, can continue their research and their study. Thank you, Father, for a good mind and a clean heart. It's through your Son, Yeshua, that I pray this prayer to you. Hallelujah. Amen. Alright. This will be my last sermon on the subject of hell. Let me do air quotes. Hell. Because I think that we've seen from the Scriptures that hell is not what a lot of people have been claiming that it is. All these lessons can be watched on my YouTube channel with all of the charts. Or you can listen to the audio lessons on my website. But as with any teaching, anytime that you bring a teaching to the table, there will always be objections to that teaching, no matter what it is. Some objections stem from emotions and traditions. And we need to always be careful to check what we believe and see if it's based on an emotion or a tradition. A lot of times I found that things that I believed were based on a tradition that I had been taught and never studied, or an emotion that flared up in my carnal mind or carnal heart. Some of these objections that we're going to discover on this particular subject come from select scriptures, however. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. People who say, well, I believe that when a person dies and they are an unbeliever or they're a wicked person, that they automatically go to the bad place and they're burning in flames and will be burning there for a thousand years, a million years. If you believe in eternal conscious torment, then you have to believe that unbelievers will burn for a million years, a billion years. And Yahweh's just getting started. He's just going to keep torturing them throughout all eternity. If that doctrine is true, that's what you'd have to believe. Um, I believe that the scriptures that people try to use to teach eternal conscious torment are misunderstood or misinterpreted. And I believe that they stem most of the time from sloppy Bible study. We should always interpret the unclear verses by the clear verses and the few verses by the many verses. Anytime we read the Bible, if we have 50 
hundred verses that say one thing. They're very clear cut. It's not hard to understand. Then we come across one, two, three, maybe five verses that seem like they're saying something different. A rule of interpretation is don't throw out those five verses, but try to see if there's another understanding of those five that harmonizes with the 50 or with the 100. Well, there are so many scriptures that speak of the final judgment as being death, destruction, destroyed, cut off, vanish like smoke, burned up like chaff, perish, die, be no more, etc. So many multitudes of verses say things like that. And I've went over some of them in this series. And finally, here by way of introductory, this doctrine is very important because it's important for us to speak the truth of Yahweh. And I believe it's important for us in order to bring people to the faith. I'll talk about that later. However, this doctrine is not salvational. If you know someone who believes in eternal conscious torment, as horrific as I believe that that is based upon the Bible, I don't think that it will affect a person's salvation. They can still be in the resurrection. And I believe that when they raise from the dead to newness of life and immortality, that they will have to say, Oh, wow, it wasn't really like I thought it was. But that doesn't just go for me pointing fingers at others. I believe that that is true for all of us. I believe all of us will have to say, Oh, wow, that wasn't exactly like I thought initially. There was something different that I couldn't see in the Bible. So praise Yahweh that His mercy endures forever, even for our shortcomings in our studies and our shortcomings in our understandings. The first text that we're going to go to is in Matthew 25. This is a very famous text that I believe speaks of the final consummating coming of the Messiah. This is the text about the sheep and the goats. Most of us know this text. This is where Yeshua looks at some people and He says, whenever you uh, did these things or did not do these things, depending on the people group, whenever you did these things or did not do these things unto the least of these, my brethren, you did not or did do it unto me. And we know that He said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And he's speaking to the sheep, which represent the righteous on his right hand. And they're like, when did we do this to you? We never knew you. We never had the opportunity to do this to you. And he said, well, when you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then the opposite is true for the goats, which represent the wicked on his left hand. He said, I was sick and you didn't help me. I was poor and you didn't help me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, well, no, no, no. When did we not do it unto you? And he said, well, whenever you did not do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it unto me. The sheep get eternal punishment and the righteous get eternal life. According to Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46, it says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the argument here, or the objection here to annihilationism, what I believe, is this. Is that if eternal life, in verse 46, means without end, then eternal punishment has to mean without end. And I agree with that. 
I actually believe verses like this teach against universal reconciliation. The doctrine that the wicked will go into the lake of fire and that the lake of fire is a purging or a re-education process from which they'll be resurrected and eventually everybody will be saved from their sins. I do not believe that because of verses like this. Daniel 12.2 is another verse that would teach the same thing. So I do believe that if the life is eternal for the righteous sheep, then the punishment is eternal for the unrighteous goats. And I believe that the way that that is played out is this, is that ultimately the goats, the wicked, they are destroyed never to live again. The punishment is eternal, but it's not eternal punishing. See, eternal punishing would mean an ongoing process where somebody is conscious and being punished, but eternal punishment can cover that they die or be destroyed and never rise again. What about this eternal fire? in verse 41, that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice it wasn't prepared for humans, but it was prepared for spiritual beings. And I have a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to reteach that, but it's a sermon from 2009 that I taught about the devil and his angels and why I believe, because they are spiritual beings, that they will have to be tormented throughout all eternity in the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20, verse 10. But that doesn't apply to human beings, but... For another sermon, another time, you can listen to that if you like. What does this eternal fire mean in relation to human beings? Well, I think that the word eternal and eternal fire means that the effects or the result of the fire is eternal, not the ongoing process. For instance, the Bible speaks about other things that Yahweh does as being eternal. In Hebrews 5 verse 9, it says that Yeshua is the author of eternal salvation. That doesn't necessarily mean that He is eternally saving people, that we continuously sin and we need saving from our sins. No, eternal salvation means that when He saves us that are righteous and we enter into His kingdom, the result or the effects of that salvation will be eternal. The same thing in Hebrews 6 verse 2, it speaks of eternal judgment. That doesn't mean that Yahweh's behind a disc and He's eternally ongoing judging people. It means that the judgment that Yahweh gives, the effects or the result of that, are eternal. They're everlasting. They're without end. And remember also, in Jude chapter 1, verse 7, it uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of eternal fire. It says that these two cities and what happened to them are a picture of what will happen at the final judgment of the wicked. And it caused the fire that fell down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, eternal fire. And of course, the question that I ask people, I use Jude 7 all the time when I talk about this subject. The question I ask people is, is Sodom and Gomorrah still on fire? The answer, obviously, is no. Sodom and Gomorrah is not still on fire. So why was the fire called eternal? Because Sodom and Gomorrah was never rebuilt. The effect or the result was forever or eternal. Luke 17, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 1 verse 7 all show us that or say that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of the final judgment. Now, here is another point about the word eternal. Because in the Bible, eternal doesn't just have a quantity meaning, quantity meaning like time or duration, but it has a quality or qualitative meaning, meaning the state of things. 
Greek scripture often uses the word aeon, as you see on the screen. Aeon, and it means or equals an age. Most of the time, aeon means the current state of things, this current age. The KJV would say like this world, but it's better translated this age. It means a time period or like we say, you know, in this day and age or in that day and age. Okay. While aeon equals age, there is another word, aeonios or aeonion, which equals the age to come. But this second word, aeonios, is usually translated eternal or everlasting. Uh, more modern scholarship has showed us that aeon is best translated age and aeonios is probably better translated qualitatively as speaking of not the current age or the current state of things, but the future state of things to come, the kingdom age or the age after the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Mark 3.29 is a good example of both. Now, this is in the KJV. And I wasn't looking for this text in Mark. I was going to use the one in Matthew, but this morning I did a cross-reference to Mark's gospel that speaks of the same account. And Mark 3.29 illustrates this point better. In the KJV, Mark 3.29, Yeshua says, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. It's kind of awkward, but the KJV is very wooden literal translation. Hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. So if you blaspheme the Spirit of Yahweh, you hath never forgiveness, KJV, but you're in danger of eternal damnation. Now, I want you to notice here the interlinear on the screen on Mark 3.29, reading it literally here from the translation taken directly from the Greek text. It says, But whoever blasphemes against the Spirit holy has not forgiveness unto the age, but liable is of an eternal sin. Notice the word age there, that is aeon or aeona, which is a variation of the word aeon. And then notice of an eternal sin is aeonion actually, or aeoniu, which is a variation of aeonios. So it's talking about that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you don't have any forgiveness in the current age or the current state of things, nor in the age to come. And this is why Mark 3.29 speaks of eternal damnation. Damnation in the age to come. It's a quality of condemnation or damnation that we've never quite seen before. That's not to say that Yahweh hasn't judged people, but Yahweh has never judged people like they will be judged at a future state in the age to come. So, Young's literal translation says, But whoever may speak evil in regard to the Holy Spirit hath not forgiveness to the age, but is in danger of age during judgment. So the point is, the quality of the judgment, not this current state of things, but the one that is to come. So therefore, Matthew twenty-five forty-six can equal this. Eternal life that is given to the righteous means they are resurrected and they have immortal life. That's a life that the righteous sheep do not experience now because it's appointed unto man once to die. But in the age to come, we'll resurrect to immortal life. Versus eternal punishment, which means the wicked are resurrected, punished, and then destroyed. That is a punishment 
that no one has seen yet because that punishment lasts age during or eternal. It's a little technical, but hopefully you can see the, the quantity and the quality there of the word eternal. Our next slide is answering another objection. Luke 16, if you'd like to turn there. Luke 16, which talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And this is probably the number one text that people go to, at least that i found, when you tell them that you believe in annihilationism or conditional immortality, that immortality is only granted at the resurrection to those in Christ. They say, what about the rich man and Lazarus? I want you to remember to interpret the few in line to the many because this is the only text of its kind in the Bible. Now that doesn't mean what this text teaches is not true. It doesn't mean that we should just throw this text away and not deal with it. That's why I'm going to deal with it. It just means that we should try to understand and interpret it in light of the rest of Scripture. So let's read it. Luke 16 beginning at verse 19. I've got the King James Version on the screen. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar man, certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he saith unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So, we read that text, and I don't know about you guys, but I can see how somebody reads that text and says, well, I believe that when a wicked person dies, they immediately go to the bad place where they're tormented forever. Now, granted, the text doesn't say anything about tormented, eternal conscious torment. It just says that, in, the, in this text, it says that the rich man was in torment. It doesn't say that his torment never ended. But it does say that he was in torment. But nevertheless, I can see how somebody can read that text and, and come up with that. But what I believe is done is usually this text is camped out on and a 100 or more texts are kind of ignored. 
Remember what we talked about with the Old Testament? Most people, including very intelligent scholars, they dismiss the Old Testament, what the Old Testament has to say about final judgment. They say that it doesn't have much to say about final judgment. Why? Because it doesn't say anything about eternal conscious torment. So they already have the ECT doctrine in their mind, and they say, well, the Old Testament, it just hadn't come through yet. It needed to be revealed in the New Testament. Kind of like people say with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, most learned theologians and scholars will tell you that uh, nobody in the Bible consciously believed in the Trinity, but they say it had to be later developed. So I don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense myself, but be that as it may, here in this passage in Luke 19, or Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, I think the first thing we need to point out is that this is a parable. Now, in a lot of Bibles, um, they'll have headings. And the headings are not inspired. The headings are put in there by translators and people who publish the Bibles. But in the KJV here on the screen, which is taken off my uh, KJV app, it has a little heading that says, The Parable of the Rich Man and Lazarus the Beggar. Once again, the headings are not inspired, but I point this out to show you that some people acknowledge that this is a parable. What is a parable? It's an illustrative story. It's a story that you tell to illustrate really one main point. It's not something that literally took place, but it's a story. It's kind of like Yeshua told the parable of the sower who went out to sow seed in the field and some seed fell on rocky ground and some seed fell on thorny ground. And Yeshua is not telling us that story to teach us how to farm. He's telling that story to tell us that there are people in the world and these different types of soil represent different types of people. And the seed that's thrown out is the word of the Almighty. So uh, this, I believe, is a, a parable. One of the reasons I believe this is because in verse 19 it begins by saying there was a certain rich man. I want you to notice if you just back up to Luke 16 verse 1, same chapter, another parable begins, the parable of the dishonest manager or the unjust steward. And it begins how? With Yeshua saying, there was a certain rich man. There's also a case in Luke 12, 16 where it says, and he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of... A certain rich man brought forth plentifully. So, I think that this is a string of five parables that begins in Luke 15. If you look back to Luke 15 in your Bible, Luke 15 verses 1 through 2, it says, All the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. The him there is Yeshua. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. People will complain today if you do that too. They'll complain about you just like they did about Yeshua. There's a string of five parables in Luke 15 and Luke 16. There's the parable of the, of the lost sheep, which is not really about a lost sheep. <laughs> parable of the lost coin, which isn't really about a coin. The parable of the lost son, or we call it the prodigal son, right? Really, it should be called the parable of the two sons because there's two sons mentioned there that bring the point across, but we call it the prodigal son parable. Then you have in verse uh, chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. And then finally, I believe you have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And all five parables, they come off of that statement there in Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, where Yeshua is eating with these people that are outcasts in society. Why? Because He's reaching out to them and trying to be a friend to them, to bring them into the fold. Uh, Yeshua practiced... Uh, 
His evangelism to transform people's lives and love people where they were at. And so when the Pharisees and the scribes complained, he begins to tell all of these parables. And all of these parables are given to us and they teach us about loving the poor and helping the poor and the outcast. As a matter of fact, in Luke 14, just look up one page back here in my Bible, Luke 14, 12 through 14, he also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you For you will be repaid at the what? Resurrection of the righteous. Not when you go to heaven, when you die. But at the resurrection of the righteous, you will be repaid. See, So, there's a theme here in Luke's Gospel. And also in the book of Acts, there's a theme about helping the outcast and helping the poor and loving people that most people don't want to love. Can I get an amen? That goes for all of us. We have to be reminded of this all the time. Because in our flesh, there's a lot of people that we don't want to help, that we don't want to love because they're not like us or they're dirty or they're, you know, they just don't have the same social status. We don't want to give them the time of day. We shouldn't be that way. We should be like Yeshua. And I think this is what the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is all about. Now, some people say, well, this can't be a parable. This is a very common objection to this being a parable. I don't think it's a good one. But some people say it can't be a parable because of the name Lazarus. Yeshua calls the poor man by name. He calls him Lazarus. So it obviously can't be a parable because he uses the name Lazarus. Well, I don't know what kind of argument that is, as though Yeshua can't call a man a name in a parable. But do you know the word Lazarus stems from a form of the Hebrew name Eleazar? Eleazar was one of Aaron's, the priest's sons in the Old Testament. And that name means the one whom Elohim helps. The one whom the Almighty helps. And I believe that it's used here in this parable in Luke 16 as more of a descriptive title than a proper name. So in verse 20 when it says, And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, I think we should understand it is, And there was a certain beggar, the one whom the Almighty helps. I think that's why the name Lazarus or Eleazar is used in this text. So Lazarus here appears to be a person that the Almighty didn't help. Because he's laying at the rich man's gate and he's got sores on his body and he's lame. Middle Eastern custom was is that people would take people that couldn't walk or couldn't get to a wealthy person's house and they would carry him or her to their house and sit them outside in front of the house hoping that someone with great wealth would take care or help this person who was less fortunate. Well, Lazarus looked like on the surface, on the outside, he looked like a person that the Almighty did not help. But he's named here to show that oftentimes the people that we don't think Yahweh helps are the ones that He helps. The people we don't think Yahweh watches after are the ones that He watches after. So, parables are meant to teach us a lesson. They're not always literal to max capacity. And as I've talked about this text with people for many years, I have pressed them to see if they really want to take it all literally. And nobody that I've ever met takes all of this literally. You ever hear somebody tell you, I remember one time I sat down with an older man and I said, tell me something that 
is unique to your belief system or your faith. And he told me, he said, well, I take the Bible literally. And anybody that says that doesn't know what they're talking about. Because nobody takes all of the Bible literally. When Revelation talks about this woman who's standing on the moon and clothing the sun and has a crown of 12 stars around her head, do we really think that there's a woman out there standing on the moon, clothing the sun with a crown of 12 stars? What about this dragon that rises up with so many heads and horns and all this? Do we think that that is literal? Or do we think that that's metaphorical and it's a word picture to teach us about something like an unrighteous, destructive kingdom? as the book of Daniel would tell us to interpret those words as. Well, nobody takes all the Bible literally. The Bible is literature, which means that some of it is wooden, literal, some of it is metaphorical, some of it is idiom, some of it is uh, various figures of speech, as I've mentioned. And so I believe that this parable should not be taken literally. For example, in verse 22 Do we believe that the angels carry away dead righteous people because it says the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom? Do we believe that when somebody dies, angels carry away their body? This is talking about his body. Was his body literally carried away? Well, people don't believe that because they teach that when somebody dies, it's their soul that they claim that they have, their soul or their spirit, and they're disembodied and they go to heaven or hell. But this is talking about Lazarus's body. The reason I know that is because when you read on in the parable, if we take it completely literally, the rich man is said to have eyes. He said he lifted up his eyes in hell, verse 23. And he said to have a tongue in verse 24. Uh, Touch my tongue with a, a, a little drop of water with your finger. And then Lazarus is said to have a finger in verse 24. It's Lazarus's finger. Well, I don't think that this means that Angels carry away the bodies of dead people. Also in verse 22, do we really believe that dead people, dead righteous people are carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom? This text doesn't say anything about heaven. It doesn't say anything about Gehenna. But it says that Lazarus was carried away to Abraham's bosom. You know what that word means? It means his chest. A fold of his robe, like where the robe would fold over. So do we really think literally that angels took Lazarus and tucked him into Abraham's chest? I don't think we believe that. I think we see Abraham's bosom and we think about righteous Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, uh, the one that welcomes people in, things of that nature. Verse 23, the word hell here in verse 23 is not Gehenna. It is the word Hades. It's the word that we talked about last week. Hades is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the grave or the tomb or death. So Gehenna is not used here. So at the most, what this tells us is that this parable is about the intermediate state, not the final judgment. And there is nothing in the text, as I mentioned earlier, that says anything about eternal conscious torment anyhow. Then in verse 23 through 24, can the righteous and the wicked see each other and talk to each other from Abraham's bosom and Hades? I thought heaven was a place of no sorrow. Or when people go, they have no more sorrow. Revelation 21 is usually misread that way. Revelation 21 isn't talking about heaven. Revelation 21 is talking about the kingdom when people are resurrected to immortal life. And in verse 24, would a drop of water cool off a person that was being burned alive? No. There's no mention of heaven, Gehenna, soul, spirit, paradise in this text. And all of these things, if taken 
to the max literally do not make any sense. These are pictures in the parable to teach us that some people are judged and punished and other people are rewarded. But all that is said here is not to be taken literally. It's a parable, it's an illustration in order to get a point across. And what's the point? And here's the problem. Because Christianity has for so long, for about predominantly now, not not totally, but predominantly for the last 1,700 years, used this verse to teach eternal conscious torment, they have missed the point of the parable. The only time you ever hear a preacher teach this text is when he wants to teach about hell and tell you what it's like. And they miss the point of the parable. What's the point? Notice verse 25. Here's the point. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things. That's the rich man. And likewise Lazarus evil things. The poor man. But now he is comforted, Lazarus is comforted, and thou art tormented. This parable is about a radical reversal in the afterlife. Whereas people we might look at in this life and think, wow, they're righteous and blessed. And other people we might look at and think, whew, they got it bad, they're poor and they're sick and they're lame. Yahweh can have a total reversal in the afterlife where the poor, sick, and lame person that we thought wasn't blessed was actually a righteous servant of Yahweh, and the rich person dressed in purple and fine linen, by the way, that fine linen actually culturally refers to his underwear, his undergarments. He was so rich that he wore linen undergarments. That's how rich he was, and purple was a royalty color. Well, we looked at him and we thought, well, he must be blessed. Look look, Look at him. But yet, in the afterlife, no, he was judged by Yahweh. So, A few things that we need to recognize here. For one, as I mentioned last week, and I meant to bring this up in my sermon and I forgot, and then I mentioned it to Brother Glenn after the sermon. For one, when people die, when they go to sleep, the sleep of death, their next conscious moment is at the resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So, it's kind of like, not exactly, but I remember when I had my wisdom teeth removed. And they put the mask on me. And I think, what is it called? Anesthetic? The anesthesiologist? Try saying that five times real fast. They put the mask on me and the lady told me, she said, count to ten backwards. And I remember saying ten, nine, and maybe eight, and then I don't remember saying anything else. And when I awoke from my sleep, you know what I told her? I said, are y'all fixing to get started? She said, we're through. I said, through? How long have I been under? She said, about two hours. I didn't remember. Now, that is just a picture of what I believe the sleep of death is like. Sleep of death is a peaceful, blissful sleep. And it's not like Moses has been in the grave since way back there at the time of the book of Deuteronomy or before. And he's in the grave in his tomb and he's thinking, man, this sure is taking a long time. I wish, I wish Yahweh would hurry up. No, he's peacefully asleep. So when Moses resurrects, it'll be like he just died and then boom, he resurrected. Same thing with King David. Just died and boom, he resurrected. Time is out of mind. For the sleep of death. So 
I went over all the scriptures last week that talk about this. So think about this in relation to the rich man and Lazarus, where that it's not a parable. The parable is not telling us where people go when they die. Abraham's bosom and this place of called Hades of torment where you can look up and see and talk to Abraham from afar off. It's just telling us that when people die, there will be a reward for some and there will be a judgment for, for others. And I believe it will be at the resurrection. Also, and I mentioned this before, some people we look at and think are blessed now might be cursed later. Likewise, with people we think are cursed now, they may be blessed later. And I think we are, we do learn from here that the prosperity gospel teaching is definitely incorrect because this teaches us that riches and health do not equal righteousness. The rich man had riches and he had great health. Didn't mean he was righteous. And just because somebody is poor and sick, it doesn't mean they're unrighteous. But how many times did you turn on the television or listen to the radio and when they think that you're sick, they want to cast a demon out of you? You think some people thought Lazarus, Eleazar, had a demon? Well, I think that the Pharisees and the scribes looked down upon all of the, the lame and the, and the blind and the maimed. Uh, they looked the part, but they were not the part that Yahweh would have them be. And because modern Christianity has focused so much on using this text to teach eternal conscious torment, they've missed the main point. And this is the main point. We are required to use our wealth to take care of the poor and the sick. This is a huge commandment in the Torah. And the Torah community harps and harps on the Sabbath and the dietary laws, and I keep both of those. But it's like the commandment to take care of the poor, the widows, the orphans, is thrown to the wayside. Look at what Proverbs 19.17 says though. Kindness to the poor is a loan to Yahweh. Not a loan to the poor, not a loan that you give to the poor and think, well, will the poor pay me back? Sometimes the poor do pay us back. And that shows integrity. But, kindness to the poor is not a loan to the poor. This text says it's a loan to Yahweh. You think Yahweh repays His debts? <laughs> Absolutely He does. It says, and He will give a reward to the lender. So sometimes Yahweh repays His debts in the here and now. We get blessed in the here and now. But I guarantee you there will be a great, mighty reward for the righteous person that has been kind to the poor in the resurrection. Luke 14, 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's the point of the parable. The rich man may have come up with hundreds of reasons not to help Lazarus, but they were nothing more than self-justifications. The old dogs did more than the rich man. The text says that the dogs licked Lazarus' sores. And actually we think, or scholars used to say that that meant the kindness. Like sometimes I'll go to feed or pet my dogs and they'll want to lick my hand. But actually scientific scholarship, more modern, has showed us that when a dog licks a human sore, now this may sound crazy to some, but you can do the research. When a dog licks a human sore, there's healing properties in the dog's saliva that helps the sore on the human body. So the rich man 
Pass by Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus sat at his gate. Pass by Lazarus every day. But the old dogs that ate from the crumbs of the master's table did more to help the poor man, Lazarus, than the rich man did. But we can think of self-justifications. Well, I don't want to give because of this or I don't want to give because of this. Just give and let Yahweh sift it out. Use discernment. I'm not saying you have to give to every person that's poor and I'm not saying we can help everybody. I have so many people ask for help and I can't help everybody, but I can help some people. I wrote a song that says, No one can help everyone, but everyone can help someone. (laughs) So find you somebody that is poor and let your heart be inclined to them. Find you somebody that's a widow or an orphan, fatherless. Let your heart be inclined to them and you help them. You'll be repaid. Yahweh will reward the lender. There will be peace for the righteous, punishment for the wicked, but let's not interpret the parable too literally. And let's not miss the main point of helping the poor. I believe it's so important, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to leave it at this and we're going to move on. I believe it's so important that a portion of the money, all the money that we make, should be set aside to help the poor, the lame, the blind, the widow, and the orphan. It's a huge Torah command. I've talked about tithes before. And we've talked about how that there's no Levites anymore. And remember, the only commandment in the Bible to pay tithes was to pay tithes to the Levite. There's examples in Genesis, but no command. Uh, Matter of fact, the first commandment in the Bible to pay tithes is in Leviticus chapter 27. And it's a reference to the Levitical priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood is not active. I tend to think that there will be a future time where it will be. It's debatable. I tend to lean in that direction. But I will tell you who is still here that the tithes went to. The poor and the widows and the orphans. The tithes were commanded to go to those people. And as a matter of fact, and this isn't popular, you, you, the righteous people that keep the feast, were also allowed to partake of your tithes at the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 14. The preacher says, Ooh, don't talk about that too much. That the congregant can partake of their own tithes? This is in the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 14. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things you'll find in the Bible that are never, ever taught. But I do believe that a portion of all that we make should go for charitable gifts. Find somebody and bless them. That's the point of Luke 16. It's not telling us about the literal afterlife. And thirdly and lastly, the most common objection that I've heard, especially since I've been teaching this, this is one that I keep getting recently. Brother Matthew, if we don't teach eternal conscious torment, then people won't have anything to be afraid of. Folks say, you are taking away the motivation for people to serve Yahweh. Well, let's answer this objection. Number one, it only matters what the Bible teaches. Emotion or tradition doesn't matter. And if it's not there to begin with, I didn't take anything away. Start with the Bible, not what we think. Number two, eternal conscious torment has been predominant. It's been the predominant view for about 1,700 years. And the world is still full of heathens. And that's the predominant teaching. Revivals and ten evangelists pounded it for the last 200 plus years. And people still don't listen. Maybe we ought to say that's not the right method. That's not the right way to preach. Number three, I believe in fearing Yahweh. I believe that's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. But Romans 2 verse 4 says that the kindness or the goodness of Yahweh leads people to repentance. There must be a healthy balance. When I was growing up as a kid, 
I respectfully feared my dad. But I wasn't. I didn't cower at my dad like I was scared to death of him. You know why? Because he showed me love. And he told me he loved me more than he got on to me. His love and encouragement, speaking of my earthly dad, motivated me more than anything else. With every word of constructive criticism must come at least double, probably triple, the words of love and kindness. Do I want my children to obey me because they're scared of me? Or because they love me? Now it's one thing if you tell them to take the trash out and they murmur and complain and they grumble and they cinch the bag up and they take it out and they took it out they obeyed the literal command. But wouldn't it be better if they obeyed the spirit of that law too? That when you ask them to take the trash out they said, sure dad. Sure dad. And they did it with a smile on their face and they were humming a hymn when they did it. <laughs> say it's not possible. I don't say that's not possible. I've seen it done. Do I want my spouse to serve me? Or does my spouse want me to serve her? Because we're scared of each other? Or because we love each other? I want Tisha to serve me because she loves me and she appreciates me. Not because she cowers at me. And vice versa. I've seen people realize what the Bible actually teaches about hell. The true biblical teaching. And I've seen through that they come to love Yahweh or come to love Yahweh even more because they realize He's not an eternal torturer. Yahweh really is love. Even to His enemies like He asked us to be. Now Yahweh is just and He must punish unrepentant sin. Don't get me wrong. He's just. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that He's an eternal torturer where He tortures somebody, like I said, for a billion years and He's getting His kicks off of it and He says, well, we got another billion to go. I don't believe that's the heart of Yahweh. I don't believe Scripture teaches that's the heart of Yahweh. Number four, in the book of Acts, which is the historical example of the early church, hell is never mentioned. Not even mentioned in the book of Acts where they evangelize the lost. Lost Israelites and lost people of the nations. Acts shows us the history of the early church. And the Apostle Peter does mention destruction one time in Acts 3 where he says, Yahweh will raise up a prophet like unto Moses. You'd listen to him. If you don't listen to that prophet, you will be destroyed. And then in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul mentions judgment where he says, Yahweh will judge the world by that man whom he hath appointed. Speaking of our Messiah. Nothing about flames, nothing about Gehenna is in the teaching in the book of Acts. None of the earliest sermons that are recorded for us in the historical book of Acts mention hell or mention flames of torment, eternal conscious torment. Positive preaching, motivating people by the goodness of Yahweh. Acts shows us the example of the proper way to evangelize. We can stand on the street corner and we can yell about eternal conscious torment and it might make people look, but I guarantee you it will turn most people away. But if you stand on that same street corner and you hand out food and coffee to the poor and you sit down with them and you listen to their problems and you give them a hug or a kiss on the cheek and you tell them that you love them and you tell them there's a mighty one that loves them and He sent His Son to die for their sins, I guarantee you that that message will do more good to their heart and to their mind than telling them, well, you've got to repent or burn in the flames forever. I've seen a lot of street preachers that I like to street tackle. I'll tell you that right now. 
And that's the maddest you're going to see Brother Matthew get. I'm going to bring it down right now. (laughs) Read Luke chapter 15 tonight before you go to bed. Read Luke chapter 15. Read it. Where Yeshua is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, they get upset with Him. And then He tells them these parables, lost sheep, lost coin, and the parable of the two sons. He's basically he's telling them, He said, look, I came to call the sinners to repentance. I'm here to help people. The old saying goes, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. You try both methods down on the street corner. You see which one yields results. Romans 2.4, the kindness, the goodness of Yahweh leads people to repentance. That's how they evangelized in the book of Acts. Not by telling people that they would be frying like a piece of bacon in a flame but by telling them that Yahweh loves you and He's good and He sent His Son to die for your sins and to live for you. And He raised Him from the dead on the third day and you can be forgiven of all that you've done if you put your faith in this good news and then you'll belong to a kingdom where there will be no sorrow, no pain, no hurt, and no end and your cold, dead body will rise from the tomb or the grave to an immortal, resurrected, heavenly body and you'll live forever in that body and you'll live for, as we think of it now, one billion years and for the righteous, it will just be getting started. And I like to think of it like this. You eat the best avocados you've ever had. And you eat the best grapes that you ever had under the grapevine. And it's the most luscious vine that you've seen. And the best meat. Isaiah 26 says, Yahweh of hosts will prepare us a feast of choice meat. People say we don't eat meat in the kingdom. Or we shouldn't eat meat now. Oh, read Isaiah 26. They don't know the Bible. And finely aged wine. I'm not even going to mention that because I'll get off on a tangent. But the Bible teaches finely aged wine in the kingdom. And that's not talking about finely aged grape juice. So, let's follow the, the, the way of evangelization in the book of Acts. That's why you don't hear me teach on this subject much. I taught on it because we came across it in the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't spend my time telling people they'll fry like a piece of bacon. They don't repent. I spend my time telling them Yahweh loves them and He'll forgive their sin and He'll, he'll wipe, wipe their slate clean like He wiped mine clean. And five, number five, lastly, people act like destruction is, is a good thing, but it's not. There is something to be afraid of. There is something to fear Yahweh for because He will destroy the wicked and they will be no more and they will have no chance of resurrection. And also too, this is something that's not quite understood, but just like there are levels in the kingdom of heaven, I talked about that there's least and great in the kingdom of heaven, there are also levels of punishment before death takes place. For example, let me give you three verses. Luke 12, 47-48, Yeshua mentions people being beaten with few stripes or more stripes. That's a degree of punishment. In Matthew chapters 10 and 11, Yeshua says that the judgment that is to come will be more tolerable for some than for others. And in Mark 12 verse 40, Yeshua says, greater shall be their damnation. Speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes of that day. So, when the unbelievers 
Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, they'll be held in contempt by those that are still alive. When a little old atheist lady that lived down the street awakes and she wasn't a believer, but yet she kept the commandments unbeknownst to her towards her neighbor, she just didn't love Yahweh. When that little atheist woman awakes to be judged, she will have to be punished, and I believe that she will be no more in the final finality of things. But she will not get the same punishment or the degree of punishment prior to destruction as would a serial killer or rapist. That person will receive a higher degree of torment prior to their destruction. Punishing is bad, but the result of eternal death is awful. I want you to imagine the righteous on the right hand of Yahweh. And they're joyous and they're clapping and they're smiling and they're walking off into eternal life. Matthew 25. But you're a wicked goat and you have to stand there and watch the righteous be smiling and joyful and know that they're about to go into everlasting life and you're not going to get to go there because it's everlasting too late. Could you imagine how that would make you feel? Imagine having the opportunity to live in a perfect world without end in an immortal body that will never grow old and you pass that offer up. It'll be a sad day for many. Yes, this doctrine of annihilationism is more merciful than eternal conscious torment, but it's still awful for the wicked. Yet it shows that Yahweh is love even when He carries out eternal punishment. As I close today, if you'd like to study this more, I want to refer you to three sources. The first is a book by Edward Fudge, Old Church of Christ preacher, who was a radical in his time. The book is called The Fire That Consumes. There's three editions. I recommend you get the third edition. It has more information. Um, the second book is Life, Death, and Destiny by Warren Prestige. That second book talks more about what I preached on last week, about when somebody dies, what happens to them, and then it talks about the resurrection as well. And I will talk about more about the resurrection in a future sermon through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about the teaching of resurrection in the Old Testament, in the Apocryphal writings, and also in the New Testament. That's for a later time. And then, then finally, there's a website called RethinkingHell.com which was born out of Mr. Edward Fudge's book. And it's ran by a guy named Chris Date. And it's about the case for evangelical conditionalism. Remember, conditionalism just is a fancy word that means everybody's not born immortal. Immortal is something that is gifted to the righteous upon their resurrection in the coming age. And also, I have two older sermons on my website where I go into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic and there is no possible way that you will ever understand the book of Revelation unless you completely and fully understand the Tanakh first. Because there are so many metaphors and word pictures in Revelation that are answered for you if you understand texts in the Old Testament like Daniel and Ezekiel and Malachi and things of that nature. But I talk about Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 20 in those sermons. I will not be re-preaching those sermons, but I explain in them why I do not believe the book of Revelation teaches eternal conscious torment for human beings. So, 
That's the series on hell. What the hell is what I'm calling the series. <laughs> That's just a funny joke. So I think I titled the series is Hell Real. I hope that it's a blessing to you, and I hope that maybe one day when you get into a conversation with someone, you'll be better equipped to discuss the subject. And I also want you to realize that you don't have to agree with Brother Matthew on this. That's not my goal. I don't get up here to try to make people agree with me. I just teach the Scriptures as I see that they should be taught the best of my understanding. And many times I have some of you saying, well, what about this, Brother Matthew? And I end up changing my mind on something that I thought may have been correct. That's the blessedness of not belonging to an organization or denomination (laughs) or or going by a creed. And I'm not totally against all the creeds. I, I love the Apostles' Creed, but many people are more loyal to a creed or an organization. And they see something in the Scriptures that the Scriptures teach contrary to what their creed or statement of faith says. And they're forced to ignore the Scriptures and go with a statement of faith. Pastors are because they will, they will lose their job. They'll lose their pastorate. I'm so thankful not part of that. But I love everybody. So next week we're going to have uh, Pentecost actually. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it, to a lot of people. <laughs> we're going to celebrate Pentecost next Sabbath. And then of course we have the new moon after that. Um, I do want to make an announcement before we do testimonies and prayer requests. You're going to do. I want to make this announcement that because next week we, it's a feast day Sabbath, I want everybody to make sure to bring a dish, uh, food, dessert, something to drink, and then after we have our Sabbath service, our Pentecost service, we'll fellowship and eat and drink and be merry and have a good time here at the congregation for Yahweh's feast. Hallelujah. And we'll just go right in there to, to the new moon. We'll have our new moon services as well. Um, and then after that, we don't have it about two and a half months till the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a lot of people's favorite. And I can see why. You know, the kids love Tabernacles. So. so I'm not sure. I'll probably teach on something to do with Pentecost. I've been looking at some things about the golden calf in Exodus 32, which I believe was Pentecost. So I might teach some on that um, on Sabbath and new moon. And then uh, next month um, on the Sabbath, I'm going to be picking it back up in the Sermon on the Mount, just simply taking the next set of verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get back into that. But um, you love Yahweh? Isn't He good to us? Praise Yahweh. Brother Frankie.